As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Welcome back to Killer Queens. <laughs> wow, dramatic pause. Yeah, I wanted to surprise you about where you were welcoming back to. Surprise, it's Killer Queens. <laughs> God, you are awkward. All right, bring your awkwardness over here now. It's your turn. I'd rather not, thanks. <laughs> so... Don't just bask in your awkwardness. Yeah, there's plenty of it. <laughs> uh, well, if you've never joined us before, we are Torella and Tori. Oh, oops. And Tori. There we go again. Yeah. And because um, I am just one. But see, I said we are Torella. That's weird. <laughs> you did it. I'm just the one of me. You're the one of you. Yes. And then you are Tori. The one of you. Yeah. Guys listening. Oh, Awkward. So, um, you know, it's going to be lighthearted in here if you've never listened to us before. We got one five-star review that said, you had me at we're not like Rhyme Junkie. I mean, I'm not, I'm not like, oh yeah, we're so much better, but it didn't hurt to hear it. I know. It was kind of fun. It was a fun little, yeah. Yeah. It's just different. That's just all. different. And there's we're room for everyone and, and we're just different. Diversity makes the world go round. Right? I mean, God. Yeah. Exactly. So, but yeah, we're not scripted. We're just gal palling around in here. If you want to like kick off your shoes and just literally have a conversation about a case. You know what? Like the like the great Kenny Chesweger says, no shoes, no shirt, no, no problem. problem. <laughs> we don't care about that. I don't even know. <laughs> Yeah. Um, P.S. Just a quick story about no shirt. So, oh, yeah. The other day, my four-year-old son <laughs> didn't have a shirt on because we were changing him from the massacre that was lunch all over his shirt. And he's sitting there without his shirt on or whatever. And he like, he looks down at his chest and he touches his nipple and he goes, Dad, Mom, I growed my first thing. We uh, were like, what? And he's like, look, look at this. <laughs> and we're like, buddy, there, that's bud. called a nipple and you've had it since you were born. It's been there. He was like, just figured out that he had one. He's like, I, I growed my, my first thing. <laughs> like, we were laughing so hard. We were like, <laughs> did he, did he see the matching one on the other side at all? No, no. did not see that one. Okay. Nope. Just has the one he thinks. So, yeah. and hopefully the other one will be coming in soon. Yeah. In a couple weeks, he'll be like, oh my God, the other one came in. <laughs> It was so funny. We were Love like, it. all right, news we, to you. We invite you to count your nipples. <laughs> <laughs> some of us have two. Some of us have more. Some of us have one. True. Some of us have none. Oh. That's fine. What if you're like a cat and just eight of them? Pew, 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 pew. You might have eight. Yeah. Mm -hmm. We're all different. <laughs> so, yeah, it was pretty funny. That is but, hilarious. Um, anyway. So this week we're doing, well, and next week, we're doing the White House farm murders. And this was requested by Laura Ellison. Oh, my God. Hey, girl, thanks. Love you, girl. Yeah. So this took place in the UK. In Essex. And um, probably going to say some stuff wrong so no you're most likely are going to say stuff wrong that's a guarantee yes it is so just be mindful of that uh i am southern i'm doing the best i can here no <laughs> <laughs> at 3 36 a.m on wednesday august 7th 1985 
Police in the village of Tulls Hunt Darcy in Essex, England, received a non-emergency phone call from 24-year-old Jeremy Bamber. He tells the police that he got a disturbing phone call from his father who said, your sister's gone crazy and she's got the gun. And then the phone went dead like the line was cut, he said. He said that he tried to call back the house, but he couldn't get through. And during that phone call, Jeremy was calm when he explained that he needed police to meet him there at his parents' house. So he lived about three miles from his parents' house, and he told the police he'd meet him there. So, like, chop, chop. Let's get over there. And chip, chop, chip. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) If you want to play a drinking game right now, and you want to get hammered, then fuck. Every time we say berserk... Take a drink. shot. <laughs> because they all say it like a bajillion times. Don't take a shot. You'll die. But drink. You will die. Yeah. yeah. If you want to get super hydrated, take a sip of water. I will take you up on that. <laughs> <laughs> so the police made their way to White House Farm to investigate Jeremy's call. And on their drive to the farm, officers later reported seeing a white Nova that was driving extremely slow. And one of the officers said that if it was going any slower, it would have been stopped. Mm-hmm. And OPS, oh, thank you to Sloan for taking the notes on this. But she said we're talking like Diane Downs driving to the hospital slow. So uh. if that that's a good point of reference. That's as slow as you can possibly go. But that's damn near going backwards. Exactly. But what's also weird about that is they're talking about a white Nova, but Jeremy drove a silver Astra. Mm. So that's not even his car. Right. Or at least, I mean, maybe in the dark they thought it was something different, but I guess they're trying to say that he was driving super slow, like not a care in the world, like doesn't not concerned. Not urgent. He or he knows there's not a reason to get there quickly or I don't know, something. They're they're finding this suspicious. When the police arrived at the 400-acre White House Farm estate, it was said to be completely dark and silent. Not long after they arrived, it says here the White Nova pulls up, but we know that's not the Silver Astra. Yeah, but they just, this is what they think they're seeing. The car pulls up, Jeremy Bamber gets out. He said his whole family was inside and his sister Sheila was being treated for paranoid schizophrenia. And he told the officers that he was afraid that she'd done something and there are guns in the house. And Jeremy is quoted as saying, my sister's a nutter. She's gone doolally. What? Doolally? What's that even mean? I don't know. I guess that's another... Is that British for berserk? I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. But apparently that's the quote. I don't know. Okay. He tells the police that Like they, that, what we would say in the South, she's gone shithouse crazy. Yeah, something like that. Mm. Okay. Yeah. Crazier than shithouse rat. Yes. Is that what they say? Yeah. <laughs> yes. Uh, he tells the police that they, which is he and Sheila, don't get on well, and he doesn't want to be near her if she had a gun. So he's definitely saying she's definitely a... She's a danger. Yes. Yeah. He begs them to go in. The first officers to arrive on the scene were like, no way am I going in there. Isn't that your job, though? Yeah. This is their actual words. The officer says there's only two things that are going on in that house. One, there's either a bunch of dead bodies, or two... There's a bunch of dead bodies and another person with a gun. So, why the fuck would they go in there? But they themselves have guns, right? Apparently, these officers did not. What's that? Why? She just said, why would the police get a call about a possible active shooter and send police that are not armed? So, they had to wait for backup. Mm -hmm. So, the initial officers that they sent, for whatever reason, did not, were not armed. Now, Laura, maybe you could answer this. Do, you know, here, our cops all have guns. Unless it's, like, a mall security cop, you know. Yeah, but they're not, they're employed by the mall, right? Not the police department. Yeah, they wouldn't be dispatched to. Right. But maybe because it was a non-emergency call. But if, but if it came in as a non-emergency call, like, just to the, what we would, you know, the sheriff's department, police department, whatever. But you hear that you've got somebody who's armed. Right. If there's mention of a gun, you would think that you would send somebody that's got... Yeah, we're talking about lethal force here. Like... Yeah. Yeah, let's send 
Unless it's like on the other guys where the captain gives them the wooden guns. <laughs> Maybe they were in trouble. Maybe they did their first desk pop. <laughs> <laughs> and they needed, yeah, that's probably what it was. That's what it is. Okay, so these guys just got their first desk pop, wooden guns. There they are. Jeremy was asked why his father called him and didn't call emergency services himself. Uh, just put a pin in that, guys. Remember mm-hmm. that. But Jeremy said that his dad just liked to keep situations within the family. He didn't want their shit to get out everywhere, so he just called Jeremy, hoping that he could, I guess, come defuse over. the situation. Yeah, yeah. And defuse it. So, according to the documentary, and the documentary that we're referring to is on YouTube, and whoever put it on YouTube, like, I don't know if it's like an upload situation, but it's. We've got some notes. Yeah, it's like a dubbed almost because the words don't match up. And it's I thought it was just my Wi-Fi, but it happened to you too. Yeah, and it's not even like just the mouths not matching it by a couple seconds. It's like, I don't know. I mean, it's like almost a good 15 seconds or 10 second delay or something. Yeah, I just had to. I treated it like a podcast. I did too. I just put it down. I didn't look at it and I just listened to it. Or if I did look at it, I looked solely at the captions, which were way off too because it's YouTube. But and blurry. Yeah. But but there you go. <laughs> I, we're t- really talking it up. So go check it out. <laughs> yeah, you're going to want to watch this. <laughs> so, um, but according to the documentary, the officers and Jeremy Bamber waited near the dark and silent house for armed backup to arrive. While they waited, the police asked Jeremy to draw a map of the house, and he included places where Sheila could be hiding inside. At 7.35 a.m., an armed response unit finally arrives on the scene and breaks into the house. This This is how many hours? Four hours later. Upon entering the farmhouse, I just don't... I'm a little bewildered because even the one cop that got there said, we're either going to find somebody, a bunch of dead bodies, or we're going to find a bunch of dead bodies and somebody who's an active shooter in this situation. Let's wait four hours for backup. Like, why Why is this not a priority? That seems inconceivable And what to have me. they been doing this whole time for four hours, just standing around? Yeah. I mean, maybe they played some tic-tac-toe. I don't, we don't know. Yeah. We weren't there. Just seems like a gross misuse of four hours. Yeah, like, it, I mean... But Jeremy probably had some guns at his house. Could they not have all gone back there and got some guns? Right. Like, I mean, just something. Like, do something. What Could we have saved some lives here? Like, four hours, man. Upon entering the farmhouse... Okay, guys, pay attention to this, too, because it gets fucking wacky. The team found the kitchen covered in blood, and Jeremy's father, 61-year-old Neville Bamber, was dead of a gunshot wound on the kitchen floor. Police said that the attack on Neville was frenzied with objects thrown about and broken, and he had numerous injuries along with eight gunshot wounds. At that point, the police thought the killer was possibly still in the house, so they continued to search the house cautiously with this in mind. When they got upstairs, trigger warning for children, they found Sheila's six-year-old twin boys, Daniel and Nicholas. They had been shot multiple times at point-blank range in the backs of their heads while they slept. Daniel still had his thumb in his mouth from sucking it in his sleep. That is atrocious. I cannot. He's a baby. Like, how could somebody do that? It's horrible. In the master bedroom, they found Jeremy's mother, 61-year-old June Bamber, shot dead on the floor near the door. And finally, they found Jeremy's adoptive sister, 27-year-old Sheila Caffell. She had two gunshot wounds to the neck where the gun had been pressed directly to her neck. She had a rifle in her hands with her perfectly manicured red nails and a bloodied Bible near her body. So, just for counting purposes, that would make one downstairs, four upstairs. Sounds stupid. Just wait. All the doors and the windows to the house were locked, and it was quickly decided that this was a murder-suicide where Sheila had murdered her parents and her twin boys. 200 photos were taken of the scene, and... At some point, the bosses that be told the officers to just clean the mess and wrap it up. Now, why they took it upon themselves to clean the mess, I'm not 100% sure. I mean, I get, like, removing the bodies and stuff, but they proceeded. Isn't there a whole other team of people, like, a whole other business? Yeah. Where you can call. I saw that, like, Sunshine Cleaning movie or whatever, and... Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. There's like crime scene cleaning people. Like yeah. Cleanup crew. Yeah. Yeah. It's the police don't typically do that, I wouldn't think. But they like removed wallpaper that had blood spatter on it. 
And they took all the blood-stained carpet out. Yeah, and burned it. And burned it. Yeah. It's like, not like right, they were well, taking it for... I could see if they were taking it for evidence. If they were like, okay, wrap it up. Just bring all that shit with you. You've taken all the pictures. Yeah. We'll test that other stuff here. Start the dishwasher, do a load of laundry, and let's get out of here. <laughs> exactly. GTFO. And for the love of God, take the trash out. Like... <laughs> right? What? Yeah, it's really weird. So... Apparently, the police there double as, like, a bed and breakfast cleaning service yeah, type thing. When the police broke the news to Jeremy that his whole family was dead, Detective Inspector Stan Jones and other officers on the scene noticed that he was almost forcing himself to be upset and even trying to make himself sick. See, and here we go. Here we go. (laughs) Off and running. It's so, it, we hear it every episode. They didn't cry enough. They cried too much. It was forced. It didn't seem legit. It was, you know. Yeah. Had he had he not had much of a reaction, they wouldn't have been like, well, at least he wasn't forcing it. They would have been like, wow, no emotion. That's no weird. No feeling. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So police asked Jeremy and the rest of the family to meet at Jeremy's house so they could give them the news. At his house, Jeremy's family noticed some weird behavior and odd comments from him. All of this led the police and family members to question what really happened at White House Farm, but officially the case was closed. I mean, they ruled it a murder-suicide, and it was put out in the news that way, too. Immediately, like when it started hitting the media, it was Sheila Caffell took her own life and that of her family, and that's what it was. Well, and a few days later, they gave the keys back to the to the family members, and yeah, yeah people were in the house and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. So, a little background on the family, because we did say, you know, Jeremy's adopted sister. So, we've got, um, we'll give you a little background here. Neville and June Bamber were pillars of their community. Neville was a magistrate, and both were church wardens. They were well-respected and described as a perfect pair. Neville was charismatic, kind, and firm, and he loved to party. Whereas June was more quiet and kind of shy, she was very religious, and some said that it was extreme, and she took it almost too seriously. I remember from the documentary them being described as salt of the earth people. Mm -hmm. The couple's biggest sorrow was that they couldn't have children of their own. June and Neville eventually decided to adopt, so first they brought home Sheila when she was three months old, and they nicknamed her Bambi. Bambi Bamber. <laughs> Maybe they didn't like put them together, but yeah, yeah I Bambi. Like that. <laughs> Three years later, they adopted Jeremy. Who Did they call him Flower? <laughs> at that time, was three months old. Thumper? Thumper or Flower. Yeah. You got some options. Yeah. The kids were raised in the church, and it was noted that Neville was not a disciplinarian. In fact, Jeremy had free reign. He was verbally abusive to June and loved finding ways to upset her. Oh, gosh. Neville's former secretary told the story of a time that Jeremy purposefully used his mother's fear of rats for his own enjoyment. He put baby rats in his coat pocket and then asked his mother to put her hand in. <gasps> oh, that's just mean. That is mean. If you... Because our grandmother had a crippling fear yes, of rodents. She did. And she'd fall right out. Yeah. Yeah, like screaming, jump on, on the table. table. Yeah. Yeah, like how mean would that be to do that to your mom? Yeah, and if you know that and yeah. then use it. It's one thing to not know and then accidentally scared the shit out of somebody. <laughs> At the same time, like I'm also, well, the list of things I'm terrified of is we the don't shorter have time list for is it. what she's not scared of. Exactly. But like I'm super scared of like bugs and stuff like that and I'm pretty sure that when the boys get older they'll probably like one day pick up a grasshopper and like toss it at me or something. I kind of did that to you when we were little. Yes, you did. Yeah. Well, okay, one time, not to get too off subject here, but one time Terrell called me, we lived together and she called me while I was at work because there was a cricket in the laundry room. I and really I was like, don't like crickets. What do you want me to do about this? I put a pot over it, I think, and left it for when Tori got and home. When I got home. And I, I just didn't literally want it to like jump at me. Scooped it up with my bare hands and threw it outside. Threw it outside. Yeah. I was terrified. So, yeah, I don't like them, but I'm pretty sure like you know, like little boys will do stuff like that. Yeah. So, I don't know that I just to compare has anybody seen like Viva La Bam or whatever Bam Margera's show? And he was hateful to his parents. That's true. Like slapping them while they were sleeping and stuff. Yeah. Was it that bad? I mean, I'm not saying it wasn't bad. I'm just saying. Right. Yeah. You know. 
Yeah, so it's like, I think that what they, they're trying to bring up stories of things from the past and and make this, okay, well, it fits that he would kill them, right? Because he didn't get along with his mom and he even took advantage of her fear of rats. Now, that's not a nice thing to do and... You know, there would be a spanking in order, I think. Not to little baby June Bamber. Yeah. Like, you know, I'd be like, okay, go to your room then. That's not nice. (laughs) Right. Like, I don't appreciate that. But, well, and I don't know. Neville could have gotten in there and been like, hey, man, not cool. Yeah, damn right. (laughs) Yeah. That's one thing that, like, Andrew and I have talked about because, you know, I think with moms, the kids push that boundary. And sometimes you need, like... It would be nice to have that backup and well, say... And for a boy, I think that they need a, a strong... Yeah. That it, it's helpful to have a strong man, male figure to be like, you need to respect your mother. You exactly, know? yeah. Yeah, because we did um, financial peace and one of the things that Dave Ramsey said at some point, I don't know, honestly, we listened to a lot of his stuff, entree leadership and all that kind of stuff, but he said that um, there have been times with their kids when their kids would like back talk his wife, you know, their mom, and he would say, you may think you're going to talk to your mom that way, but you're not going to speak to my wife that way. Ooh, I like that. Yeah. And Andrew has actually done that with Ben and he straightened his shit up. There are times that, yeah, you need to come in there. So uh, yeah, I feel bad for June because it's like when that's all on you and your kids just, because mom, kids push the boundaries with mom. Like what your husband said to his mom when she was like, how come you're well-behaved around other people? But not with me. And he's like, because you're my mom and you love me no matter what I do. And it's like, well, that's true. Like, yeah, out of the mouths of babes. <laughs> but um, really pushing it. Exactly. Despite the challenges, though, June and Neville wanted the best for their children and made sure that they had everything they needed to eventually be happy and successful adults. We may be in a situation of spoiled rotten, but, you know, I mean... You do. You want your kids to have more than you had and, you know, all that kind of stuff. That can be unhealthy. Yeah. It can be unhealthy. I've said it with kids and I've said it with dogs. I don't know how you don't spoil them. I really don't. Yeah, exactly. It's it's really hard. It's like I used to, I before I had kids, I would, you know, have a problem. Like if I went to a store or whatever, I'd be like, oh, I need this or I need that or whatever. I mean, sometimes I still do. But for the most part, it's like, but they needed that. Like, I want to get, like, games, toys, more clothes, like, whatever. Sippy cups. I have a strong sippy cup, like, problem. Hmm. I don't know what it is, but, like, I buy all the sippy cups all the time. <laughs> We've probably got, like, thousands of sippy cups. That's funny. It's stupid. Well, I'm like, well, but, but he needs another sippy cup. <laughs> so, they were sent to the most expensive and prestigious boarding schools. They Jer- had some money. Oh, yeah. They definitely... I mean, they had a really successful farm. What were they farming? I have not a clue, Okay, actually. Um, farm things. <laughs> Jeremy was described by the headmaster at Gresham School in Norf- Norfolk. Is that how you would say it? I don't know. Norfolk? That sounds bad. Yeah. I would say Norfolk. Yeah. Norfolk. <laughs> That's what I'm saying. <laughs> I know. I don't mean to, but it's like they... Please forgive us. We yeah, know not what we do. Yeah, I feel like they kind of make it a little more succinct than what a southern drawl would maybe do, but I'm you, just going to have to say Norfolk. You're giving yourself too much Norfolk. credit. It's not southern drawl. It's redneck as hell. Yeah, white trash would say. <laughs> but yeah, so I'm just going to have to say Norfolk because I'm making it sound dirty. Uh, but they described him as a bit of a loner who had trouble fitting in. While at school, Jeremy told some friends in confidence that he was adopted, but these quote-unquote friends used this to tease him. That's awesome. What the fuck? That's nothing to even tease about anyway. Yeah, like, oh, you're adopted, stupid. Like, what? Okay. What are you going to, yeah. Like, that's just, that's mean and just... It's fucking hateful. Yeah. Kids, I mean, kids can be super mean. That's totally true. Like, I don't know if they just don't get it and they're like, okay, that's different. But I don't know. It's like since the dawn of time, kids have teased other kids about anything that makes them different. Oh, for sure. And some of the meanest kids I've ever encountered are middle school. Yes. Age kids. Yeah. Girls, boys, all the above. Exactly. They're just like assholes. Yeah. Toddlers are assholes too, but in a different way. Well... I think they know not what they do more, so. (laughs) Yeah. 
Yeah, they're also really cute, so it helps. Yes. Um. So, yeah, they, they teased him about being adopted, and, I mean, you know, what's that going to do to you? Like, that's just fucked up. Jeremy hated that he'd been sent away and begged his parents to let him come home. He felt rejected by his birth parents, and then he felt rejected by his adoptive parents, and then it kind of led to this difficulty of making friends. I mean, he felt abandoned all the way around. That's really sad, because... The way that I look at it, and it's easy for me to say because I wasn't in the situation, but for someone to make fun of you for being adopted or whatever, your birth parents loved you enough to want you to have a better life, and your adoptive parents love you enough to want you in their lives. Like, that's a lot of love, but in the situation, and then kids spinning it that way. Exactly. Yeah, because it it feels like... They didn't want me. They gave me up. And then now these people who said they wanted me, me are to... sending me away. They don't want me near them. Like, what is that about? And yeah. it's, yeah, you can totally see where that comes from. Like, it's just really, it's sad. And it's, that begins that lie-based belief of, I'm not wanted. I'm not worth it. Yeah. So mm-hmm. sad. Um. Forensic psychologist Carrie Danes, who was consulted on the case, explained that Jeremy felt rejected and he wanted to be loved and accepted so badly. That conflict caused him to detach from his emotions so he could no longer be hurt. How sad is that? Yeah, that's really, really sad. It's really sad. It's like, okay, well, I just will not feel anymore because then I can't get hurt. If I don't let anybody in, then they can't hurt me. And then, you know, later in life, that turns into womanizer kind of people or you know if we're talking about a male or whatever like it turns into well you're just an asshole who can't respect relationships and you know whatever Mm -hmm. but you can see where that begins juna neville had certain expectations for sheila and jeremy jeremy was expected to work on the farm and eventually inherit and run it I don't want your life. (laughs) Right. Sheila was expected to marry a nice local boy and bless June and Neville with grandchildren. That's a lot of pressure on both ends. A lot of pressure. And, well, I guess we'll talk about it, but Sheila had other dreams, too. Uh, Sheila and Jeremy had different ideas for their futures. They decided to go to London and go basically bananas in the clubs and nightlife. I'm picturing, like, when... Paris Hilton? Oh, okay, Paris okay. Hilton or Dee and Dennis when they try to do the club thing. <laughs> right. And D, like they're trying to get make D famous or whatever, like a party girl. And then they end up sleeping in the dumpster, basically. <laughs> Sheila started modeling as Barbie. I think Bambi would have totally worked. Bambi would have 100% worked. I like Bambi. I like Barbie if your name is Barbara. I think that's cute. Yeah. But like you already had Bambi. Just Just stick with with Bambi. Yeah. Yeah. She was overwhelmed with the stress and glamour of the modeling world and started spending more money than she was making. And when they showed a picture of Sheila, beautiful. Oh, yeah. Gorgeous. Yeah. Friends said she lived in a dream world and she wasn't very practical. Instead of marrying a good Christian boy, she married Colin Caffell, who was a broke art student. That, I don't know. There has been a time in my life where that... Would have been very appealing. <laughs> like, are you broke? Yes. Do you look like you crawled out of a dumpster? Yes. Sold. Sold. That's all I want. Yes. Yeah. Me, I'm more like, uh, I was like, are you 100,000% going to cheat on me with everybody? Sold. <laughs> Let's do it. Yeah. If you're going to not cheat on me, we've got a problem. Well, we all have our, our types, don't we? <laughs> yeah, we do. Um, she wanted very much, though, to have children, and motherhood was very important to her. So that was something that... I mean, she did, you know, she did want to do, but uh, newsflash, you can want to have children and want to be a mother, yet also want to have career goals. (laughs) Who told you that lie? I know. It's like I've been reading books or something. I know. Yeah. So it's because it, and I don't, I mean, I don't know, but it seemed like her parents were pushing her to be like a June Cleaver kind of thing. You well, know, they sure didn't expect her to take over the farm. Right. Yeah. That was never a possibility. Yeah. yeah. And I, I'm going to really blow your mind here. Um, women can run businesses. Whoa. Yeah. I, I'm confused. It's possible. It can happen. Wow. Yeah. All right. 
well, news to me. Yeah, you learn I mean, every day. every day you learn something. Exactly. Yeah. So after having several miscarriages, she finally got pregnant with the twins, Daniel and Nicholas. Jeremy worked at pizza places, but he wasn't making much money, so he returned to the farm. He hated having to actually work for a living and wanted to go live the same, like, crazy free life as his richer friends. He wanted to just be able to, like, get up and fuck around all day, I guess, but have the money to do that. Right. Dolphinately have the money to do that. (laughs) Rich dicks. Yes. So he was also spending way more than he was making as a farmer. To supplement, Jeremy became an entrepreneur and started his own business. Good for him, right? That is good. Yeah, he started growing and selling weed. Oh. It's a business. It is. Yeah. He's he's a street pharmacist. (laughs) Yeah, I actually dated a guy one time and I was like, what? Like, what do you do? I just, I I don't even, I just started dating him. Like, I knew him from somebody else and I don't know. We like kind of started dating and I'm like, what do you do for a job? He's like, I'm a street pharmacist. And my like country bumpkin ass was like oh you're i thought he was a pharmacy tech like in so he's in the medical field that's what i said okay <laughs> i had no idea <laughs> and then later somebody was like he's a fucking drug dealer like what are you doing <laughs> well he really knew how to spin it right though he did i was like oh my god good for you like did you go to school for that or did like, you get a certificate yeah i was like he works at a pharmacy got it <laughs> jeremy continued doing anything he could to upset his mom so he carried that right into adulthood. He kind of is being a Bam Margera a little bit. A little bit. He would do farm work in wild, fancy clothes, oh, which she did not like. He was consistently breaking rules, and he was called a sexual predator by some. So, like we said, womanizer type. He's of. detached from all emotion, and now he's probably using like sex to try to fulfill himself while wearing these outlandish clothing options on the farm yeah high heels and daisy fishnets and (laughs) sure (laughs) whatever it was i don't know (laughs) jeremy started dating julie mugford but he was still going out and pushing limits and was even seen kissing men just to get attention seems like all bets were off for jeremy i mean i'm proud of him for doing whatever he wanted to do just do it yeah but like he wasn't going about it the right for the right reasons yeah, exactly. It was just like, what can I do to stir the pot, basically? It was... Shocking. Yeah, just the shock factor. It's like... I do love Marilyn Manson, though, so... Well, yeah, that's you know. true. There anyway. is something something to it. Continue. Not long after the twins were born, unfortunately, Sheila's marriage ended. The lifestyles her children had chosen were really taking a toll on June during this time, too. She was deeply upset by their choices and coped by diving deeper into her religion. June ended up having a nervous breakdown and going to Northampton Mental Hospital, where she was diagnosed with psychosis, and her religious beliefs continued to spiral out of control. Oh, man. And we've seen from plenty of other cases that when you get to be into, like, extreme religion or religious behavior, like, not good. No. Exactly. Zealous. Yeah, and you start taking things out of context, and it just gets very dangerous. Mm -hmm. And it's isolating, which is the worst thing. Yes, it absolutely is. However, June wasn't the only member of the family struggling with their mental health. Sheila also had a nervous breakdown not long after June and was admitted to the same hospital. Sheila had come to believe that she, her twins, and her mother were all possessed by the devil And at the hospital, she was diagnosed with paranoid schizophrenia. Once she was out of the hospital, June and Neville bought Sheila a flat in London so that she and her boys would have a stable place to live. That didn't sit well with Jeremy, who was still working on the farm because nobody bought him a house. (laughs) Like, what the fuck? Yeah. Where's my house? (laughs) Um, Around this time, Jeremy reportedly told his girlfriend that he was going to take out his family and he bought a semi-automatic rifle for this purpose. Oh, my. Whoa. That's a big jump. (laughs) Um, Most of the family did not realize the turmoil in Jeremy, but Neville could sense that something was wrong. He even told his secretary, Barbara Wilson, that he wouldn't be surprised if Jeremy shot him in the near future. I am just always stunned when comments like that or statements like that are made in these kinds of cases. If I go missing, it was so-and-so or, you know, 
Really? I've, I guess I'm just going to have to count myself blessed. I've never felt that way before. Well, yeah. And like, what are people... I would like to know the context of how it was. Okay, because essentially every time I spend money, I'll text Tori and be like, oops, I went shopping today. Um, can I move in with you and my husband divorces me or Andrew's going to kill me and make it look like a an accident or whatever? Right. It's a joke. Clearly a joke. Big fat joke. So is that the context? If he's like, oh, yeah, I wouldn't be surprised if Jeremy came in and shot me next week and it, we're laughing about it? Or is it like, hey, he's acting really weird. He's starting to get really agitated. I think he might shoot me in the future. Well, and knowing everything that we know about this, that Jeremy bought a semi-automatic rifle. Yeah, if that's true. Right. Like, And he did have a lot of guns. Right? Yeah. I mean... Yes, exactly. So, Julie... Where were you at? Like, if somebody comes to you and says, I think I'm going to kill my whole family. Okay, let someone know. Totally. And if, but I'm not, bl- I mean, I'm not blaming Barbara. I'm not blaming Neville. But again, if you think. Who's Barbara? The secretary. Oh. If you think that somebody is going to shoot you, I don't know. Is it just that you're like, well, I can handle him? Or are you not thinking that. Maybe other people might be in danger here. Like, maybe I need to get him some help. Like, what's... I don't know. It just... It's just a shocking... Like you said, it's very shocking to hear stuff like that. Mm -hmm. Like, especially knowing what happens. Like... And I know that it was not... Obviously, not Sheila's fault about her mental illness. It's not June's fault about her mental illness. I don't know what you want to say about Jeremy, but... Neville had a lot on his plate right about then, you know, Uh like he's probably trying to like get everybody just through the year, you know, like, let's just let's just keep going. I can make this work. I don't know. Yeah, exactly. It's there's there's a lot going on there. Mm -hmm. Um, All right. Thanksgiving must have been really uncomfortable. (laughs) Yeah, I would think so. Back to August 7th, 1985. Police commented that at this time, Tolls Hunt Darcy saw maybe one murder a year. Maybe. Mm-hmm. This was the kind of nightmare that was unheard of. People had differing opinions about this familicide. The press was reporting that Sheila was the murderer, and like we said, the case was officially closed quickly. The fact that Jeremy was behaving a little oddly and based on his talk with police quickly led his family to question Jeremy's involvement in the murders. Now, now, there have been times where that's, it, it's a good thing that the family continues to question it. Like um, the the cold case file is the second one that we did where they were like the house burned down or whatever. And then we finally found out it was the wife many years later or whatever. So there's definitely times where the family keeps it, you know, kind of front of mind, top of mind to the investigators. Um, it's just doesn't always they can be wrong yes while the family was gathered at the house to hear the news of the murders jeremy's girlfriend was brought in to try and comfort him so the police let julie and jeremy have some alone time in a bedroom oh yeah i I mean i just wasn't expecting the bedroom part (laughs) of that be like okay and after the blowjob right here's your bedroom take off your pants if you'd like yeah when he closed the door detective inspector stan jones said that he thought he heard them or jeremy at least chuckle or laugh huh okay after giving him some time with julie police questioned jeremy a little more closely during his questioning jeremy's cousin david boatflower and his father robert which would be june's brother-in-law Robert listened in and thought the answers were not ringing true. Mm. When asked if he had a loving relationship with his parents, Jeremy gushed that they had a wonderful relationship. Family remembered a more exasperating and hot-tempered relationship. Well, based on the history that you've shared, I would say that that's pretty accurate. Like, yeah. Jeremy, do you just see the world differently than everybody else does, or... Yeah, exactly. There's like, definitely some not-so-happy times there. I mean, it seemed like his entire purpose in life was just to piss his parents off. Like, 
Just call a spade a spade and be like, they got on my nerves. Yeah. I didn't get along with um, them. I don't know what you're talking about. Yeah, exactly. But, I mean, I guess, you know, you're like, well, if I say that, then they'll think, you know, whatever. But it, it goes a long way to be honest. Because if you're dishonest, then they think that everything else you're saying is a lie. Right. So, it's not helpful. Let's err on the side of the truth. Yeah. People who thought Jeremy was more involved had to wait and hope that something would happen that would justify taking a closer look at him. They thought Julie knew more than she was saying or was able to say, and his family was worried that any one of them might be next. Oh, my. One week after the murders on August 16th, a funeral was held. Jeremy was everything a morning son should be. He was tearful, somber, he was respectful, However, David Boatflower said that the second Jeremy was out of sight from anyone important, like the police, press, whatever, his face split into a Joker-style huge smile. The consulting forensic psychologist Carrie Danes said that Jeremy was displaying classic psychopathic behavior by painting on emotions needed in certain situations and then wiping his face clean of those emotions as soon as he was out of the public eye. So he's mimicking. He's picking up on what should be appropriate and applying that in that situation. Mm -hmm. After leaving the funeral, the bodies of June, Neville, and Sheila were taken and cremated, and Daniel and Nicholas were buried next to each other. Some of Sheila's ashes were scattered over their graves. Oh, that's sweet. I mean... It is, I mean, she's their mother. Yeah. Also, maybe she killed them. Sucks. Yeah. Jeremy's performance at the funeral tipped his family over the edge. The family and the executor of the will, Basil Cock, went to White House Farm and did their own investigating around the house. While they were looking in cabinets and cupboards, the family came across boxes filled with ammunition, a sight, and a silencer. The silencer was sticky with blood and had flecks of red paint on it. Stan Jones was also finding more evidence that was suggesting that Sheila might not have been the shooter. The 22 caliber semi-automatic rifle used could hold 10 bullets in the magazine. There were 25 shell casings recovered from the scene, which means that the gun would have had to have been reloaded at least two times. This is a messy process that would have caused Sheila's manicure to show signs of damage. Is that necessarily true? I don't think so. I mean, because they did also say in the documentary, like, she's a farmer's daughter. She knows her... She knows how to use guns. Like, mm-hmm. she grew up with that. It's not something new to her. Mm-hmm. I think that that is not the best way to determine. You know what I mean? Like, oh, her nails are still painted. Yeah. Exactly. That's not That's so scientific. Uh, yeah. <laughs> you know? Like, exactly. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. I've never reloaded a gun, but it seems weird. Sheila's husband claimed that Sheila didn't shoot guns and had never used a gun. She wouldn't even allow the boys to have toy guns. It was thought that the shots taken in this house would have required the shooter to have some skill and experience in order to hit moving targets. Not long after the funeral, Jeremy dumped Julie. Until this point, Julie said that she was too frightened to speak and thought nobody would believe what she had to say anyway. Now that she and Jeremy were no longer together, she went to police with what she had to say. She told them that Jeremy had a plan that involved all of his family members being murdered at once in order to guarantee that he would receive a 436-pound inheritance, which would be about $588,000 at the time and about $1.7 million today. It's a lot of money. A lot of money. Between August 7th and the beginning of September, Jeremy had been partying and had spent more than... 6,000 pounds. Jeremy also went to a yacht club party. What happens at a yacht club party? I've never been to one. Yeah, right. I don't know. Hmm. Yachts are the biggins, yes. Yeah. I think of Jay-Z when I think of yachts. Maybe Jay-Z was there. Maybe. Baby Jay-Z. Baby (laughs) Jay-Z. Since he had torn through the family's ready cash, Jeremy decided to approach the son to sell his story and, more specifically, to sell dirty photos of his now-deceased sister. Oh, my gosh. That's horrible. Yeah. She has passed away, and you're going to sell nudie pics of her? Right. What the fuck? And also, also, that's that's your your sister. sister. That's weird. That's disgusting. 
Super Why weird. do you have those? Exactly. Why do you have those? Where like, and if you found them, this is like cruel intentions all of a sudden. Yeah, it really is. Like, say you were just like going through stuff, trying to clean stuff up, and you find these pictures, you just immediately burn into them. the garbage, or yeah, burn them. Like, uh, uh-uh, uh, I didn't mean to see that. Don't want to see that. Mm-mm. Like, no. What are you doing there? The editor told the reporter to turn him over, and the next day they did run a story about Jeremy Bamber, except it wasn't the story he wanted. They ran with a headline blasting Jeremy for trying to sell his dead sister's photos. Well, you kind of had that coming, Jeremy. Come on. Yeah, that backfired. Jeremy continued to party and was unaware that evidence was mounting against him. He was in St. Tropez for a (laughs) holiday with a male friend while the police monitored his movement. And when he came back to Dover on September 29th, which would be seven weeks after the murders, he was arrested and charged for all five murders. This is like the Menendez brothers. Like, they didn't know... At all that anybody was on to them. Yeah, exactly. Like, <laughs> how they didn't know. Exactly. But... They had, like, no fucking clue. He continued to maintain his innocence when his trial started on October 2nd, 1986. During the trial, David Boatflower said he stared at Jeremy so much, he was actually asked to stop. Oh. Boatflower said he wanted Jeremy to know he was there. Like, hey, man, let's not make this weird. Yeah. Eyes on your own paper. Eyes on your own paper. <laughs> He's looking at me. Judge, he's looking at me. (laughs) Not touching, can't get mad. (laughs) Exactly. The jury heard evidence that Sheila's blood was in the silencer, and that would mean that there was no way that she could have shot herself. Not only would the silencer have made the rifle too long for her to physically be able to shoot herself, but the silencer was found in a cupboard downstairs. There's no way she could have shot herself, put the silencer away, and then made it back upstairs to die. Julie Mugford testified, telling everything she knew about Jeremy's plan and the things he'd said. The prosecution had to overcome how she could be viewed. Was she an innocent girlfriend who had been too terrified to talk before? Or was she a bitter, scorned woman trying to get the man who broke her heart put away for murder? I mean, that's when I first heard, like, and then Julie comes forward and tells this right after he broke up with her. I'm like, how many times have we heard people, like, falsely accuse their boyfriend of something or girlfriend or whatever of something a murder they actually had nothing to do with like not even a family member or anything like that and they're like oh my boyfriend did it or my husband did it or whatever and then later they're like actually i just found out he was cheating on me i wanted to get back at him yeah i was just mad at him so yeah i mean it's it happens you gotta find more evidence than just julie's word at this point well yeah because you let your emotions get in the way and Again, that's hearsay. That's not fact. She wasn't even a witness. I mean, she maybe witnessed him saying something. You know what I mean? I don't know. It's just not yeah, exactly. credible. It's not credible. Yeah. It's it's muddy. Mm-hmm. She was asked why Jeremy said he was going to murder his family, and she told the court that Jeremy told her that they all had to go. She said Jeremy called his dad old and decrepit. She claimed that Jeremy also told her that his mother was just a religious freak. Sheila had paranoid schizophrenia, and the twins would not be brought up in a good way, so it was best that they just all die. Mm, I don't know about that. Once all the evidence was in and testimonies were complete, the jury was sent to deliberate. They came back once for clarification about the silencer. The judge told them that the silencer only had Sheila's blood. (sighs) So no, like, not Neville's, not the boys, not anybody's, it was just Sheila's. After a full day of deliberations, the jury still couldn't come up with a unanimous verdict, so the judge allowed a majority verdict. Oh, I didn't realize that that's why. So was it supposed to, is it always supposed to be unanimous there? I have no like, idea. here it is. Yeah. But I know some places majority is fine. Well, but it's kind of crazy that they're like, well, if th- these are the rules, but if that doesn't work for you, then we'll do it this way. Yeah, exactly. Like, wh- well, what the fuck was the point of the rule? Come on, that should have been a mistrial. They came back 10 to 2 for guilty, and the judge sentenced Jeremy to life with a minimum of 25 years in prison. And he got like five life sentences. Yeah. But, and it's weird that it's like, but you at least got to serve 25 years. Like five life sentences. And he's young, 24 at the time. Yeah. I mean, I guess if, if it's a wrongful conviction, that's great news. But if... It's not a wrongful conviction, then it's like 25 years and you can get out. Like, now we're Janine Jones status. What's going on? Right. 
Before adjourning, the judge called Jeremy evil beyond belief. David Boatflower agreed that he didn't think you can get much more evil than Jeremy. The forensic psychologist Carrie Dane said that Jeremy Bamber definitely has a personality disorder and that he ticks the boxes for a psychopath. He's grandiose. He's arrogant. He has little emotion or shallow and fake emotions. He's manipulative and uses people to meet his own needs. After over 20 years in prison, Jeremy Bamber continues to proclaim his innocence and his defense team, that included Giovanni Di Stefano, who apparently, according to the documentary, also represented Saddam Hussein. Saddam. We will not let Saddam scare <laughs> us and whatever. Uh, continues to fight for his freedom. They say that vital evidence was withheld from the trial. They point to things like a picture of Sheila from 9 a.m. where her blood is pouring, which means that they that she would have died within an hour and a half to two hours of that photo being taken. But Jeremy was already with the police in that time frame, which proves Sheila could not have died before 5 a.m. The defense points to the Bible beside Sheila and a possible suicide note seen in the picture. But the Bible was destroyed after the trial for some reason. Of course it was. Yeah. They even blamed a government conspiracy that dates back to Neville's army service, where five friends of Neville's that worked with him in security services mysteriously died between 1953 and 1973. That's probably Mm. a stretch, but... Jeremy Bamber has been appealing his conviction every chance he gets since 1986, and psychologist Carrie Danes thinks it's because he's bored. She believes that Jeremy has coped with any emotions by simply cutting them off. Since he's been doing this emotional denial for so long, Danes believes that in his mind, Jeremy Bamber truly believes that he is innocent. After his conviction, the Home Secretary, who is responsible for immigration, the police, and other matters of safety, extended his sentence to life without parole. He's one of maybe 30, 35 people in the UK serving a life sentence. Okay, so sounds like done and done, right? Everything's wrapped up nicely in a little bow. Yep. Except that it's not. (laughs) So next time, we're going to go through all the evidence again. Remember all the shit we told you to remember? Hold on to all that. Put all that shit in it. You think you know, but you have no idea. Yeah, get out your detective notebook, and you're going to want to take some notes here. Because we need to dust for some fingerprints while you're at it. Yeah, because we need to talk about, uh, get a magnifying glass out, and Mm -hmm. and one of those hats, and a a pipe. You're going to want to smoke a pipe. So, we're going to talk about the silencer. We're going to talk about all that blood evidence. We're going to talk about how many bodies were where. And we're going to tell you a ghost story. Ooh. And there was a hook. (laughs) On the rear She's been dead for 10 years. <laughs> um, Chilling. Yeah. So that'll be next time. And if you are in the Patreon, you'll get it right now. Don't even have to wait a week. Yep. Yep. If you're not in the Patreon, you got to wait a week, but it's worth waiting for. Yeah. Or it's not. Go ahead and jump on the Patreon. Yeah, exactly. Your choice. Either yeah. way, you still get to hear it. Mm-hmm. It's just a, a difference of days. That's all. Exactly. Yeah. So we. Love you. We do. We'll catch you next time. Bye. Bye. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. What if everyone thought you murdered your best friend? And what if you can't remember that night? And what if the truth doesn't matter? The Washington Post says Amy Tintera's Listen for the Lie is an edgy mystery novel whose true crime storyline draws you in like the podcast Serial. A Good Morning America book club pick that Stephen King calls a page-turner from the first sentence to the very last. Listen for the Lie is on sale now everywhere books are sold.